0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always. We've got another fun episode for you today, more listening tips. Today we're going to be talking about the Romantic era, Romanticism, and joining me to talk about what I think is probably most people's favorite era of classical music. We've got my fabulous co-host on the phone, Hannah Reffitt. Hannah, how how is everything going? might I add, happy birthday. Thank you. You have spilled the beans that we happen to be recording this on my birthday. I feel a little guilty that everyone showers you in compliments on your birthday because really the credit goes to my mom. I did not do very much (laughs) at all, but other than just existing, but thanks nonetheless. As you pointed out before we came on the air, uh, I have been an adult for 10 years, so that, that certainly feels weird. Um, but yeah, things are going well. How are things, uh, in Indiana?
1: Yeah, they're good. It's, uh, you know, gearing up for the election.
0: Yep. We are exactly a week away. Uh, so might as well use this as an opportunity to remind all our listeners if they haven't already. I imagine most of them have already taken care of it, but make a plan to go vote or probably a lot of them have voted already. Did you, did you vote in Indiana?
1: Friday, I re-registered to vote at my parents' house, which I don't feel like I'm a part of the community.
0: Okay. Um, but I voted, and I figured
1: out who I was voting for in my new area.
0: Nice. Which was fun.
1: So it's always good to equip yourself with that knowledge before you go in and vote. And I did it on Friday, and I feel. Very accomplished. Have you
0: voted yet? I have. Also in Indiana, in uh, Marion County, Um, it was a real tough decision. Right at the top of the ticket. (laughs) (laughs) No, I. The real tough decisions came in all of these random judicial. uh, Do Do you want to remove this uh, justice from? Yeah. So, in any case. I did too. I did too. And I felt, you know. Oh,
1: really? Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of them were state appointees from Indiana, so I was not uh, always the hugest fan. But, you know, I think doing enough research, trying to uh, vote in potentially a more diverse and uh, open minded representation of maybe not the state of Indiana, but the country as a whole into the judiciary sure. was like a good thing to do. So I tried to do that. And here we are in any case, everyone's thinking about the election. Let's take everyone's mind a little bit off the election and fast, uh, rewind 200 years to a much simpler time. Um, actually they had pandemics like every year in the 1800s. Yeah. So probably wasn't that great, but we're talking about romanticism and I think romanticism features most casual classical listeners absolute favorite composers and favorite style of music. And I'm just curious. I mean, Hannah, you are by no means a beginner and you've been exposed to this world for a while, but what are your kind of thoughts on if you if I was going to tell you right now you're going to go hear a romantic piece of music, uh what would you what would you think and what would you maybe expect? And there's no Right or wrong answer to this, I'm I'm curious what the what the word romanticism implies to you. Sure.
1: Um, prior to my experience at the ISL and with classical music, I would have just thought that that was a um, a feeling, a description of a type of music. But now that I've been exposed to it and a a uh, semi-novice um I know that it's an era and I know that it sort of starts with um Beethoven goes up towards there's there's a period of time in there I don't know what the era is exactly on um I year wise but I know like Beethoven is um romantic and Dvorak um And some of my favorite composers are in the Romantic
0: era. And what what type of music might you be kind of expecting? What affect when you listen to a Romantic piece as opposed to something else? Oh, um, oh, I feel like I'm a bad student, but I don't. I I know what
1: you're asking me. It's uh, well, it's all like based on. Okay, if, if I'm wrong, just completely call me out. But it's, like,
0: all based on, like, the four movements. Okay. And, um... I think you're thinking about this way too technically. I'm just, am I? Yeah, just tell me a kind it's of... Like, less
1: tone poem. More... The word is on the tip of my tongue.
0: Absolute. Sure. Well, listen, we're going to get into that. Because, actually, um, the Romantic era features tone poems and absolute music you're operating you're operating like three levels above what i'm talking about though here i'm just i'm just thinking romantic music i think what most people associate with it is like lots of feeling lots of passion lots of
1: you're talking about the emotion
0: yeah or yeah or just and i'm sure you would have if i had phrased the question better you would have you 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 know all those things about romanticism Well, listen, that's always good, too. Part of the point of this podcast is to give people a bunch of knowledge so that at cocktail parties they can appear smarter than they actually are, which is a a very important skill to have in life. So in any case, you've identified uh, some important things. Romanticism, if we want the kind of year markers, it went from about 1800 to about 1910. It's really mostly the 19th century. And as you mentioned, it started really with Beethoven and it ends with the beginnings of modernism with composers like Schoenberg and Stravinsky and Bartók and Mahler. and, And it was a time of rapid divergence in classical music, actually. Beethoven was kind of the patron saint of sorts. So he exploded these doors open with the Eroica Symphony and introduced romanticism and music, whatever that might mean. And from there, all of these different strands of romanticism emerged. And so it's, it's an era of music that includes tons of stylistic variety, way different from what we've reviewed so far, the classical and the Baroque eras, which are, compared to romanticism, all of the music is very, very similar. So there are tons of different styles of romantic music in comparison. And so one of the challenges for us on this episode is gonna be um kind of thinking about how we can listen to this big era of music with some, some general ideas. Um, and one of the one of the key ideas, and this is gonna be our first tip, is to try to see the music of the romantic era through the lens of the composer and not listen to it purely as kind of a external product, this document that's being played, but to try to kind of put on the glasses of the composer, so to speak, and uh, try to figure out kind of what they were feeling, what they were trying to say in this music. And I'll tell you the reason why we're entitled to do that in this specific type of music. Um, and we'll actually talk about this more in our other tips, but the key kind of philosophical move in Romanticism was from music as an object to music as kind of art in and of itself, art for art's sake. And so there was this sense that composers were these kind of tone poets, and they weren't just trying to craft the most perfect collection of notes. They were trying to put their emotions, their passions, their feelings on a page in the form of music. And so for that reason, it was a huge, huge philosophical and aesthetic shift. And so when we're listening to romantic music, we should have that in mind, that these composers thought about music in a very different way. And so here, I think much more so than in music that we've previously talked about, it's okay to really let yourself kind of uh, try to get in the mind frame of the composer and hear what they were trying to convey on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, if you want to call it that. Um, And so to do this, obviously, is really challenging. It's hard to know, okay, what was Beethoven thinking? And we don't want to guess. But in this vein, if you can do a little research on a composer or something like that, I think for the Romantic era specifically, this can be very helpful Just try to get a sense of what their life circumstance was when they were writing this piece, what they were involved in, what this piece might have been in reaction to, because that can really help you to craft a sort of lens through which to hear this piece. So Hannah, I'm going to have you listen to uh, this piece by Dvorak, and actually what I want you to do is... You might, uh, you might recognize this piece um, and you might even, the title of this piece suggests a little bit about it, but I just want you to listen to this clip and try to listen um, with our kind of mapping technique and, or actually try to just listen and get a sense of a couple emotional ad- adjectives that you might associate with this particular melody. And then after you've listened, we'll talk about Uh, the lens of the composer and see if it it jives, if it enhances what you heard. Um, So let's listen to this clip by Dvorak. This is the second movement of his New World Symphony. So Hannah, any thoughts on that clip? Some, some kind of feelings, adjectives, what frame of mind the composer might've been in when they were writing this? Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, I've been,
1: okay. So it's Dvorak's new world and it's obviously very popular to those who have been lucky enough to be familiarized with orchestral music. Um, but I've only experienced it live once and very visibly remember experiencing it and not knowing how wildly popular it is in the canon and being very moved by this movement especially by um the french horns solo which is what we're listening to in this english horn oh i'm sorry yes (laughs) yeah sorry um
0: basically the same thing
1: Yeah. to me feels as if you know like the feeling of saying goodbye to a friend after, and you know that you're not going to see them for a long time or something like that it's very melancholic but bittersweet um that those are the emotions that spring up for me for this particular piece of music
0: yeah well i think that's great because it actually so it turns out it's the new world symphony and effectively he's writing this melody and this piece as a kind of nostalgic, bittersweet, exactly as you said, reflection on leaving his homeland um, of Czechoslovakia and moving to the United States. And so there's kind of a deep homesickness that he was feeling when he wrote this particular symphony. And so my guess is that, uh, I mean, you hit it right on the head. So we barely even needed to know that. But had you known that, it probably would have if anything just reinforced this hearing and maybe maybe given it a little more poignancy even knowing that this was this was written specifically in that frame of mind i'm not yeah, sure I yeah think, and i think that and the first time i had listened to this piece live i was very very
1: new to listening to classical music even just live um, and I do remember thinking like, oh, this sounds so sad and melancholic, almost as if, like I said, like saying goodbye to a friend and just like, it is validating to hear that that's sort of the very sentimentality that Dvorak had when he wrote it. And I think my point is to the listeners is to like, just trust in your instincts because we're all human, I hope, and emotional beings. And just if we let our emotions sort of speak to us when we listen to music, it's just a great guidepost that will help us um, be comforted and enjoy
0: the music even more. 100%. And I think that especially applies, as we're mentioning here, to romantic music. So great job. First tip, try to see through the lens of the composer and try to kind of a little bit when you're listening, put yourselves in their shoes and try to figure out what they're what they're trying, what what kind of state that they were in, that they're trying to convey, uh, in this music. So the second tip, which you've also already alluded to, Hannah, is it's very important to distinguish when you're listening to a piece of music, as to whether this is absolute music or programmatic music, and very quickly for those who don't know what those terms mean, absolute music is, as we've mentioned. Kind of art for art's sake, uh, no sort of plot or narrative. It just is there music for music's sake. There's no kind of story attached to it. Um, most of the music of the classical and Baroque uh, eras is absolute in the sense that especially instrumental music, music with no text, there's no extra musical narrative there. It's just the music in and of itself. And so if you're listening, most likely, if you're listening to just a symphony, like Brahms's first symphony, if it doesn't have a name or something like that, it's probably absolute. Same with a string quartet. And there are certain romantic composers, Brahms, Schumann, Mendelssohn, for the most part, Beethoven, uh, for the most part, Mahler, Sibelius, Dvorak, who wrote primarily absolute music. Then there's programmatic music. And programmatic music in its most uh, pure form is music that tells a story. And this is where, as you mentioned, Hannah, the, the genre of something like a tone poem comes in. Um, operas are inherently some, somewhat programmatic because, of course, they're telling a story. But a lot of stuff that has text uh, might be telling a story. But there are tone poems by Richard Strauss, for example, something like... Uh, Don Juan is the story, a very specific story of this this kind of playboy uh, tragic hero. There's Macbeth. There's, there's all of these stories that composers are trying to tell in music. And so if you can figure out whether there's a specific plot or story that's supposed to be attached to this type of music, then it's important to try to know what that program actually is. And so it's, again, worthwhile to do your research if you can and figure out, okay, this piece is called Don Juan. What is Don Juan actually about? Um, If it's absolute music, you just apply the techniques that we've talked about in this podcast, hearing ideas, grouping, mapping. Um, Those will serve you incredibly well. Those are tailored towards absolute music. If it's programmatic, you can still apply our techniques, but just direct them towards... Uh, the program that you might actually be aware of. So try to hear ideas in the context of, oh, this is a story about Don Juan and this this playboy. I kind of want to try to hear uh, what's happening in the story and how the music fits that. And so if it's a programmatic piece, it's good to do a little research again on what the story might be. Now, there's kind of gradations of programmatic music. And I want us to listen to an example of absolute music and an example of programmatic music. Um, But a lot of programmatic music from the Romantic era was not like fully programmatic in that it has an explicit story, but it might be like the New World Symphony where there's a little bit of extra musical content, like, oh, this is a symphony about uh, missing home and going to the New World. Or in the case of the piece that we'll listen to, Beethoven's... Pastoral Symphony, uh, this has very brief headings to a lot of the movements that give some sort of story. The the one that we're going to listen to today is Awakening of Pleasant Feelings Upon Walking in the Countryside. So it's not really a story, but it's kind of a description of character that can give us a little bit of, you know, when we do our mapping technique, we try to imagine an image or something like that. And here the kind of vague, vague image has already been applied. And so we just want to kind of fill that in a little bit. So Hannah, what I want you to do is listen to these two pieces and try to kind of use the techniques that you know from this podcast. And the first one is going to be a piece of absolute music. It's going to be Beethoven's fifth. And I just want you to talk about, maybe let's do our mapping technique. And we'll play a little clip of music, and I just want you to talk about try to create a room in a house, and kind of what that room might look like. And then we'll listen to the sixth, and that image will largely be given to us, and it'll be your task to kind of fill it in. So first, here's Beethoven's fifth, and Hannah, you're gonna uh, create a nice little room for us. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, here we go. Okay, so there's Beethoven's Fifth. Hannah, any uh, any thoughts on how you want to map that? The kind of room that, that suggested to you.
1: Yeah, I think my first impression from the very beginning of this piece is that I see like a large mansion with these huge stone steps that lead up to um, the main doors that open up to the to the the house like so the first few chords are this grand mansion
0: okay and what's the kind of like what's the general ambiance is it light or dark or oh it's dark okay it's, it's looming i just watched um the haunting of blind manor on netflix uh-huh
1: it's not scary like that but the mansion in that on a on like a huge hill
0: okay nice okay. As always, very vivid image, and I love it. Um, so that's that's great, and I think one of the points that I wanted to make is the idea that in absolute music, this is a great technique to use, but this is probably going to be different for every listener, and for Hannah, you know, this was a a mansion, a spooky mansion. For someone else, it might be something totally different. Now we're going to listen to a piece of programmatic music, and this is, as I mentioned before... Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, and he's not giving us a specific story, but what's happening here is he's doing something very different from what had been done before. He's, not, he's also not just painting us a picture of uh, a countryside. He's, the, the point is to put us in the lens of Beethoven, as we talked about in our kind of first tip, and we're going to see his experience of the countryside through his own unique human lens so part of this is putting yourself in in the mind of the composer as we mentioned in tip tip one but now hannah i want you to listen to this first uh clip and have this idea of kind of awakening of feelings in a countryside have that in the back of your mind that's all that we need to know i don't need to tell you any more about what this might mean or anything like that but use that to inform a potential picture or landscape or something that you draw of this next clip. Sound good?
2: Yeah, sounds good.
0: All right, perfect. So let's listen. Here's the beginning of Beethoven's sixth symphony, the pastoral. So there's Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. And again, might sound in some ways kind of absolute, like the fifth, but we've got this clue. We've got this awakening of feelings in the countryside clue. So Hannah, what did you kind of see map in that uh, in that second clip? Yeah, so
1: you're definitely on some sort of um, road journey, perhaps a car today perhaps at some sort of carriage back in Beethoven's time um, but you are seeing a, like a rolling brook or um, rolling hills and maybe some birds and you're just, the, from the clip that I heard, that we all heard is you just get an overwhelming sense of like a sigh of, of relief as you exit perhaps the hustle and bustle of where you once
0: were. Yeah. So I really like that. And I think, again, the interesting thing about that is that, um, that still might be different from other listeners feelings about this particular clip, but given that little hint of programmatic material, we're all going to be listening communally with a sort of vague image in mind. And so I think that can help you. It's not about getting it right or something like that, but but the composer gave you that for a reason. And so when you, it's important, I think that's the second tip, to distinguish between absolute and programmatic music. And when it's programmatic music, to try to know what the program actually is so that you can listen in the sort of lens that the composer wanted you to. So that's our second tip. Let's, let's keep plugging along. We've got three more. And the third one is to listen for extremes. Now, Romanticism is is kind of about pouring your heart and soul out on the page, and there was a trend through the course of the 19th century, really starting with the Eroica Symphony, which was a super long piece and did all these incredibly interesting formal, uh, made, made all these formal changes to the symphony, added some instruments, added heightened drama, and composers just tried to push this to the absolute extreme um, in what some have called Maximalism, and so by the time you get to about 1900, you have Mahler writing a symphony for a thousand people to uh, perform it, performed by a thousand people. You have uh, *Rite of Spring* by Stravinsky, which incited a riot because it was so uh, crazy. I mean, that's that's a little bit modernistic too, but it used this enormous orchestra of six players on every woodwind instrument, which was never even close to done. Um, so you have composers trying to push the envelope with, with the amount of extremes that they can include in their music. And so this manifests itself in many ways. it, it Dynamics or how loud a piece is, the range at with, which instruments can play, uh, stretching the ability of, of players and the ability of an instrument to produce a sound, the size of the ensemble. So the orchestra was getting bigger. Um, All of this stuff comes into play in romantic music, and so it requires a little bit of a kind of calibration when you're listening to a romantic piece versus a classical or a Baroque piece. It's not about listening less attentively, but it's being attuned to this idea that something that's pretty loud in a classical piece, that might be saying something pretty, pretty drastic because the, the changes are kind of more minuscule. If it's pretty loud in a romantic piece, that's probably saying something kind of middling, uh, you know, it's okay, we want to say something that's with some volume, but not a ton. But if it's like blowing your face off loud, then that's really trying to tell you something very, very extreme. And so I want to listen to a couple examples of, of this. The first is an example of the extremes of range. And so, Hannah, for this one, I want you to listen and um, apply your techniques in any way you want to, but just listen to this passage, and I want you to focus on the range of the instruments, so how high or low they're able to play. And tell me what you notice about this clip and how it affects kind of your feeling about this this music. Um, So here is... It's. This is a clip from the third movement of Mahler's second symphony. Mahler really liked to push the envelope for all of the all of the parameters of music that he could maximize. So here's a clip from from the second movement of Mah, uh, the third movement of Mahler's second symphony. All right. So, Hannah, anything that you noticed about that clip in terms of that range idea or how that kind of impact your listening?
1: Yeah. um, You're going to have to help me out. What was the instrument that was playing above all of the the strings in the very beginning of what we just heard? Was that a flute?
0: Piccolo. Piccolo. So even higher than a flute. But, but nice nice that, ears there. It makes sense now that you
1: said that it's a piccolo. Man was that
0: high. Yeah. And, then,
1: and sus, so sustained. So that goes on for a while and you're just listening to it um, so secluded in this clip. It makes you think like, oh, wow, that's going on for a while. And then once that drops off, the activity of the brass... Is just bonkers. And then you hear
0: the percussion in the back
1: of that as well. So
0: yeah, a it, going, it's a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. And, and in the clip that we heard right at the beginning, I think it's, it's interesting. You've got this, there's a melody going on actually in the bass yeah. instruments. So the cellos and the basses are playing this thing very low and it's this kind of carefree, bo- 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 boom, 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 this kind of uh, like slightly frumpy melody that's going on. And then above that, we have this like whistling, almost shriek. And it makes you feel like there's something off. It's like a ringing in your ear. while wow. And it's, it's a great use of, and that's a character that wouldn't be available to a composer, who wasn't experimenting with the extremes of range and using the piccolo to play this super high frequency that almost hurts our ears. So that's certainly something to listen for in, in romantic music. Um, Another thing just to listen for is loudness and softness. So, so where we have kind of very kind of minute variations in, in the loudness and softness of classical and Baroque music here we have enormous variation. And so I'm going to play two quick clips back to back from Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. And of course, on this podcast, uh, we use a compressor as to not blow your ears off with sound. And so these you won't get the full effect of how soft and how loud these clips are. But all the more reason why it's important to go listen to a piece like this live, because this is the Sixth Symphony of Tchaikovsky and he asks the clarinet to play uh, five piano markings. Piano is is the marking for soft, and occasionally classical composers would use two for pianissimo, which is like super, super soft. For Beethoven, two Ps was like super soft. Tchaikovsky asks the clarinet to play five Ps here, super soft, and then later we have a passage, four Fs, five Fs, which is for loud, forte, Um, So you get the full, uh, complete, kind of like full gamut of dynamic range that you could possibly ask for from the orchestra. So here's two clips from Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. But as I mentioned, we've compressed this so we don't blow your ears off through your AirPods or anything like that. But you got to hear it live to get the full effect. So there's, uh, there's Chike's sixth symphony, first movement, the great piece. And I, I recommend listening to it live. Any questions on, uh, anything so far, yeah, Hannah? Yeah. I was wondering Jacob as a
1: conductor and a, you know, a seasoned classical musician, how, like, what's the most pianissimo or forte notes you have seen added in by a composer?
0: Uh, that is w- what we just played for you right now in fact I don't I don't think I know no yeah I don't think I know a piece that uses this five piano five forte marking like a, a real respected piece of music of sure. course um outside of this sixth symphony of Tchaikovsky and it's really like I mean some people maybe myself included I think this piece verges on the border of being just like uh kind of <laughs> this it's is gonna dramatic. yeah and it like melodramatic to the point of like this is gonna sound like a a big criticism of this piece, but it's like you know how you use the word word vomit when people like it's kind of like emotion vomit on the page like here's just a little bit of that but I um but it is also kind of a great piece and so there is he's the one person who could potentially pull off marking five P's. um but, this is probably a, a talking point of a lot of musicians, but I'm curious, like as
1: an interpreter of, of music like yourself, do you hold all composers on the same like dynamic sense and like, are they all the same volume to you when you're interpreting them, or do you approach? the fortes and the pianissimos differently
0: between Yeah, composers. that's actually a really good question um, we could do an entire podcast about that, but it applies here actually I mean I think you definitely take into consideration the number of players so if you have an orchestra of a hundred people that the fortes the loud stuff from that orchestra are just going to be way louder um, than if it's an orchestra of thirty people That being said, I do think there is an element to which, and this is why this is a good question now, if you see one forte in romantic music, for me, especially if you're playing a piece that has five fortes, you might not be playing that actually at the same volume that you play a forte in classical music because there's still so much room left to go. Forte is almost the ceiling in classical music. Occasionally, you'll get a fortissimo, but in romantic music, you might get five Fs, and so you have to save something for that as well. So there is, I think, a little bit of calibration that you have to do dynamically based on the specific composer that you're playing. And it's good for the listeners also to know that and to be listening regardless for a kind of range of dynamics and to be listening, especially in romantic music, to the more the, the finer details of dynamics because a composer may have marked anywhere from five pianos to five fortes. So I think that's very important. It's a great question. So let's go on to our fourth tip here. And then the fourth tip is to listen for fluctuations in tempo. Now, tempo is kind of the overall steady speed of a piece. And in classical and Baroque music, we generally have very few fluctuations of tempo. So you start a movement of music or a piece And it'll say allegro, which means fast, or andante, which means kind of moderate or whatever. And you usually kind of stay in that tempo for the entire movement. And so there's no kind of push or pull with how fast the piece is. Or in the moment, there's not a ton of let's take a lot of time here and slow down and then speed back up or something like that. And in romantic music, you can... uh, have tempo fluctuations on the large scale and on the small scale. So first I want to show you an example of tempo fluctuations on a large scale. And what I'll play for you here is is a series of short clips. This is from Mahler's fourth symphony, the third movement. And he goes through a series of variations on the same theme. And each of them has a slightly different tempo. And so Hannah, I want you to listen to these clips and... Just listen to the speed of the music and try to get a sense of how that informs your, your interpretation of what's happening in this clip. So I'll play, I think, four short clips for you and just focus on the speed and how these tempo fluctuations make a difference in how this, this theme sounds. So Hannah, there you heard four different iterations of basically the same theme, but at different tempos. And I'm curious, how did that affect, could you hear those changes of tempo and how did that kind of affect what you were listening to?
1: Could definitely hear the changes of tempo for sure. Um, I think it was difficult for me to boldface tell that it was the same
0: theme. Yeah. Four
1: separate times. Yeah
0: well that's fine though that's fine because you know one of the I think in this particular example of these tempo fluctuations it's so drastic that you barely even notice and yeah. it, it seems like four totally different characters yes. um, so what was your thought take us through, do you remember the first one and how that felt
1: yeah it felt very tr- tranquil yeah. in the beginning and then
0: Gets more momentum. Yeah. Um. But it's still, it's almost waltz like. Very good. Sense. Very good. It sounds exactly like yeah. a waltz. Yeah.
1: And then the third is just—it feels very circus-like. Yeah. And then the fourth is just it, it just sort of spins out of control, especially with what is that? Is that um not um? It's a, is it a percussion? Yeah, uh,
0: probably Glockenspiel you're probably talking about. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the nail on the head right there. You you kind of get these four examples of the same tune in different tempi. And just the tempo change makes it go from... It's not only the tempo change, but that's like 90%. Makes it go from tranquil to waltz-like to circusy to almost frantic. And like it's spinning out of control. And so on a macro level, I think as it relates to this podcast, one of the great things that our listeners can do is when you hear a change of tempo, that can serve as a good landmark point, which we've talked about in our mapping technique. And once you hear a change of tempo, start a new mapping section and creating some new image or whatever it might be in your mind. Because usually those tempo changes will signify, okay, here's a big new section, new change of character as we heard there. This can also happen on a very micro level. And I want to play for you now just a quick example of how this can happen on a like, note-by-note basis. This is from a Chopin piano concerto. And in the left hand of the piano, pianists play with two hands, and in the left hand you'll hear this steady pulse. But it turns out that the pulse is actually not steady at all. It's not something that you could tap your foot along to because there's so many little timings that you hear um, that, that make a huge impact on how, the, how this whole passage sounds. So listen to this timing on a more micro level. The right hand, the melody is gonna be doing all of this kind of uh, flourishing, embellishment, moving around very quickly. But the left hand is gonna be setting the tempo but it's gonna be fluctuating on a second by second basis. So here's that clip and here's how in romantic music tempo can also fluctuate on a very, very micro level and why it's important to listen for that. So any thoughts on the kind of, did you, could you hear those minute tempo fluctuations and how did that clip sound to you?
1: Yeah. I think if I were given, um, maybe I don't read music very well. Uh, but I think if I were given music and was listening to it at the same time, and given like maybe a couple more chances to listen to it through, I would be able to like maybe circle where the tempo changes are once it's taken out of the music, of course. Um, but you can definitely tell where the tempo changes. Right, right. Yeah.
0: And I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually super important that our listeners, our listeners or, or you or anyone be able to identify exactly where they are. The important thing is, I don't know if you feel this way about that clip. This is, that's a, a piece by Chopin and Chopin is like the master of letting people take time. And, um, it just has this feeling of being kind of suspended in time. There's no, yeah. there's no sense that you need to move forward or backwards. It's just kind of floating. And that's because we've lost any sense of like rhythmic motor, something that you can tap your foot to. Yeah,
1: no, I was going to say before you said the word floating, it feels a lot like
0: your midair. Yeah, well, I like that, and I think that's that's because you've got this kind of feeling of suspension, yeah. uh, no motor, no no driving force. So that's our fourth tip: to listen on a micro and a macro level to tempo and these changes of speeds. You don't get a lot of that in Baroque and classical music, but you get that all the time on the most on the smallest scale and on a very large scale in Romantic music. And the last tip I want to talk about is listening for kind of timbre of instruments and orchestration. Before the Romantic era, there wasn't much of a sense. Composers didn't really spend a huge amount of time thinking about, ooh, I have a melody coming up. I'm going to put this melody in in this particular instrument because this particular instrument has this sound, has this emotional quality. And now that we've got this kind of heightened level of passion, emotion, the composers putting themselves into the score, there's much greater of a sense of, okay, this thing that I'm trying to convey now matches this sound from this instrument. And so I want to put it there as opposed to anything else. And so something might fit well, like the English horn solo from... Uh, The New World Symphony that we heard, it's very important that that's in a kind of low double reed instrument. It has that nostalgic quality to it. It just wouldn't be the same if that was played by a trumpet or by the viola section or by the percussion section. And this is something that romantic composers really thought about. So, I want to, for us to listen to this, and and for for a listener, really what's important here is just to do our kind of first technique of listening attentively and trying to listen to qualities of sound and have them help your kind of overall impression, interpretation of a piece. And so, really focus in on okay, what does that instrument that is playing now sound like, and what is that contributing? And so, I've got a good example of this. We've got this is from uh, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony his second movement, and you'll hear uh, two instruments play basically the same thing back to back. And Hannah, what I want you to do for this one is just to listen. First listen, we've got a clarinet and then an oboe, and then even the flute interjects a little something. And I want you to listen to the timbre of sound and tell me just your impressions of how it differs when it switches instruments. So Hannah, you heard there two instruments playing a very similar melody. First of all, were you, were you able to hear those two instruments and kind of their different sound qualities? So the first one, the first one that's playing that kind of long soaring melody is the clarinet. And then the oboe comes in. It has that slightly more nasal, uh, um, bright sound, um, just a different, different quality of sound. And so I'm curious, did you have any impressions? How did that melody sound different to you when played on those two different instruments they're both woodwinds but they have kind of a different quality of sound the clarinets is very pure the oboes is a little more kind of nasal but not in a bad way necessarily sure the acuteness of the oboe I think has an effect in this
1: piece yeah Um, descriptions of the two wood ones and and that it sort of sounded in those senses.
0: Yeah. And I think, but I think that's a good thing. And maybe this is part of what you picked up on was, uh, you know, the clarinet in this particular clip. And I think you, you kind of were alluding to it even before I said that it has this kind of sustained and peaceful nature to it. And so it gives this theme a very kind of calm and tranquil sense when the oboe comes in, for me, it has a little more heat, a little more passion. And so it's almost like the second time we hear this, we need to do it again with that kind of, now we're pushing a little bit. It's not just that sea of tranquility from before. Now it's it's heating up a little bit. Um So that, I think, is another really important thing. and And the timbre of instruments comes into play all over romantic music, and so that's the last tip that we have to offer is is to listen for those instrument colors, the different sounds, the different blends, because composers, especially as you get later in the Romantic period, were really thinking about that kind of thing and making their choices very deliberately. So those are our five tips for listening to Romantic music. Any uh, any final thoughts or maybe suggestions that you have for our listeners for Romantic music that you happen to like, Hannah?
1: So and it's still Beethoven's
0: birth year. You're correct. Fifty It feels it feels like uh, a decade ago when we started <laughs> yeah. the Beethoven celebrations. Remember
1: when we were performing Beethoven concerts in yeah. January?
0: <laughs> I, I, I barely do, to be honest.
1: Uh, it seems like twenty seven years ago. Um so I would just recommend, you know, Beethoven Seven is my tried and true, and I'm just really sad that I didn't get to see it performed live this year by the ISO. But one day I will go and I will see it, and I cannot wait. It's just gonna be a while. Yeah. Um, and until then, I'm probably gonna listen to it tonight. And there you just go. Enjoy, enjoy romantic, um,
0: the That's... romantic
1: era, and. Use your listening tips for this era.
0: Fantastic. Any any late romantics? What about like you? Dvorak, Tchaikovsky, Mahler, Sibelius, Strauss? I love
1: Sibelius. Sibelius um, 5. Yeah. Is a big one for me. The last movement. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's a good
0: one. Great suggestion. Um,
1: yeah. So just, uh, I would say for listeners, just, you know, Just go down some rabbit holes in in YouTube. I mean, Lord knows we all
0: have a lot of time on our hands. So just, you know, have some fun on on YouTube. I think that's a great, that's a great, uh, great idea. And the nice thing about romantic music, you can apply these tips, but also it spans the full breadth of human emotion. And so, you know, we're all going to go through a very, uh, interesting experience in the coming few days um, it's certainly a interesting and very loaded time for our country and so the great thing about romantic music there's plenty of stuff if you need to wallow a little bit there's plenty of stuff if you need to celebrate a little bit if you're like incredibly sad there's stuff for you if there's incredible if you're incredibly happy there's some stuff for you and so uh, it will be there for you on November 4th or where whatever the day after election day is <laughs>
1: And we probably won't even know
0: results for a while, too. So yeah. even beyond that, romantic, music Great. will be there for you. Yep. Yeah. What better than, than, you know, we've waited this long than to just drag it out even further?
1: I, I, I think I'm just going to start digging a hole for the apocalypse.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, dig a hole to some other country and and yeah. uh, potentially just, just have that in the back pocket. Yep. We shall yep. see, but on that very uh, pessimistic note, <laughs> go and uh, go and listen to some some great romantic music. It will certainly cheer you up. And thanks as always for joining us. Big thank you to Hannah. Thanks so much for, for coming on today.
1: Thanks so much for having me and happy birthday.
0: Ah, uh, thank you, thank you. You are too kind. Well, thanks to our listeners, and we will be back soon. As always, this is Jacob from Attention to Detail. Thanks for joining us.